0: I'm betting you're awake, are you? What do you want? Figured I'd like to talk to you. About what? A little conversation. Pick up that phone and speak the words. There's a caller who's sure. Hello. Bradley J is too bold. Hello. And he's dying to call and get even. Hello. When he's on air, he knows. Hello. Bradley's minds never close. Oh, wow. With a word he can get what he came for.
1: Jay talking with Bradley J.
0: Makes me wanna call him. Oh Steordus, I speak Jay. WBZ News Radio 1030. WBZ News Radio 1030 and it's 62 degrees. In Boston, areas that used to be a pleasure to take a walk in are no longer a pleasure. I don't even feel comfortable myself, and you know that I'm not a shrinking violet. Right downtown, Park Street Station, Tremont Street, take a left on West Street. Used to go to Fajitas and Ritas to get some Mexican food. Not really comfortable going there that way anymore because they're selling drugs. They're selling heroin down that street. Recent trip to Seattle, historic Pioneer Square. Now, it's always been a place where homeless folks would congregate, but this last trip there, again, very uncomfortable, so uncomfortable that uh, I, I had a few hours to kill, and uh, usually I would have killed them in Pioneer Square, but I went to the airport because those streets were just littered with the, the debris, the human debris, the fallout from the opioid epidemic. And uh, I'm really concerned about this. I had Dan Ray, I asked Dan Ray if he would speak to the mayor when the mayor was in. He did on my behalf about the situation in downtown crossing, and I appreciate that. But how did we get here? How serious is it? Well, I got to tell you, I've, I've seen a lot of books about it, but this one is real good Dreamland, the true tale of America's opiate epidemic. And uh, the author, Sam Quinones, is with us. How do you do, Sam?
1: Uh, Very well, Bradley. Thanks for having me on
0: your show. Absolutely. Now, I could just go through the standard opiate epidemic questions, and I'll get to those later. But you, you know, this book is so special, and you you are such a good writer that I I want to use your weavery (laughs) to tell the story in the beginning. You you talk about Portsmouth, Ohio, and Dreamland, which was a swimming pool, kind of a paradise for kids. Right. Uh, some time ago, but now it's a wasteland. Was this where you grew up?
1: No, no. I um, went to to Portsmouth, Ohio, which is in southern Ohio on the on the Ohio River, across from Kentucky, um, because I wanted to understand one part of this story. In Portsmouth, uh, it was Portsmouth was where the um, the thing that we know as a pill mill began. This is where this would be pain clinics, and name only, really. Um, really, these are clinics where the doctor figures out he can make a ton of money if he'll just almost sell prescriptions for uh, narcotic painkillers. And so I went there uh, with the idea of writing that part of the story. And as I, as I got there, though, I realized there was many other uh, parts to the story that could be might be told there. And one of them was the destruction of community. I believe a lot of what this is about, this story is about, is how much we've done to destroy community in this, in this country. And, and there in Portsmouth was the story of, uh, it was an all-American town at one point, not so long ago, in the 1970s, early 80s. Uh, had a steel mill, had shoe factories, bustling Main Street, 50,000 people. And at the center of town was this gorge, kind of this the emotional center of the town, was this gorgeous, uh, enormous football field size swimming pool which served as a town babysitter. People grew up with the swimming pool. Everyone kind of was watched over by everybody else. And the name of the pool was uh, Dreamland, which I uh, used to title my book. Well, the, 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 the Rust Belt Syndrome kind of set in in that town. The steel mill left. The, the factories left. Half the population left. Main Street emptied out. And then in 1993, they kind of uh, they shut down the pool, dug it up, and it's now a... Um, uh, a big strip mall, basically. It was a sea of asphalt, basically. And, uh, and with that, the town, I thought, lost something essential, like much of us across the country that made us vulnerable to this uh, plague of addiction. Uh, it lost something essential in what kept it cohesive, what kept it unified, what kept it together in a place where people communed with each other. You know, every day you'd see each other at the, at the swimming pool. It, it seemed to me a metaphor for what we'd done, to community in this, in this country. And um, uh, Portsmouth then became a center of pill of the pill mills. First place where you saw uh, pill mills um, uh, sprout up were, was in Portsmouth, Ohio, and you'd have huge numbers of these pill mills uh, basically prescribing millions and millions of pills a year in a town of 20,000. And of course, a, a horrible addiction followed uh, because it, it, it had lost what had held it together the kind of the bulwark of, of, of society, social and community cohesiveness. Jobs, of course, people, Main Street, but also this swimming pool that was so essential to people just kind of being together in a, in a community setting. So that's why um, I went to uh, Portsmouth, Ohio.
0: I realize that the opiate epidemic is far more dangerous Kills way more people than guns, correct? Or I don't know the numbers, but it's even if, sure. if you don't go by kill. Other than killing, it destroys communities throughout the the whole land.
1: Yeah. Exactly, and that's what makes this epidemic unlike any any other. Um, is first of all the level level of mortality. Um, uh, uh, we had more overdoses in 2016 than the entire death toll of Americans in the Vietnam War. Now. Um, and most of them were my blind share of that was due to uh, narcotics, heroin, or prescription pills, or now fentanyl as well. Um, uh, but but uh, yes, I mean, that's the, uh, the other thing about it is, because it is that it, this is a, a problem that has swept across the country. There's really almost, I don't believe there's any state in the country that does not face this problem in a very severe, severe way. And the reason for that is because this was not started by the underworld. This was not started by drug traffickers and mafias and so on. It was started by doctors believing something that wasn't always true, believing that these pain pills now they were convinced by pharmaceutical companies, pain specialists, by the insistence of their patients wanting to be fixed by us, American health consumers, demanding kind of a, a quick fix to our pain. They, they, they became convinced that these pills could now be used without really any risk of addiction on people who were suffering, uh, who were in pain. And uh, that was true for some people and, and most definitely not for, for, for others. But it was, we, the, the medicine behaved as if it was true for every, everybody. And so you began to see in the 1990s a huge expansion, unprecedented expansion of just a huge supply of narcotic painkillers, opioid painkillers uh, prescribed to people of all kinds, all types of pain, all situations, backgrounds, and what have you, um, all across the country. And that created an enormous supply in medicine cabinets around the country. Um, and that's created an, uh, an enormous uh, a, a black market in, in pills as well. Um, across, across Most, most, most areas had, had a black market in these pills.
0: And when so, I see, when it, I see it, the it, picture of the town on the cover, yeah. you realize that there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these towns that are gutted. Have been gutted more more dangerous than Muslim terrorism or Christian terrorism or incel terrorism or guns or oh
1: of course anything yeah. and, and it's and I want to say it's not just uh, it started in what you might call Appalachia the Rush Belt regions uh, but now I think it's really a far more a far more uh, intensely felt in uh, or as intensely felt in many many well-to-do suburbs and um, some of the places that have done best in the economic expansions in the country in the last, let's say, 30, 30 years. You know, it's in Charlotte, it's in Salt Lake, it's Indianapolis, it's in Minneapolis, and, of course, surrounding suburbs and, 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 and small towns. It's, it's, it's pervasive throughout, throughout throughout the country. And so it's a remarkable thing because it's never happened like this before. And it's happened like this because it was, doctors were the main source of supply.
0: This is not a dry book. This has... A humanity to it because you have characters like well um matt for example you start out with matt tell me about matt
1: a uh, young man uh in in a very well-to-do family in uh, suburban columbus ohio and um you know i think his parents were the ones i know i never knew matt Schoonover. over i knew his parents uh, i know his parents and um I think they were very, very much like many, many, many parents who got caught up in this. Um, they, their, their son, variety uh, of things. Long story, but basically, eventually got addicted to pills, and then eventually went on, on, on to to, to heroin. They got him a treatment, and really not knowing how to deal with this problem, they got him treatment, put him in treatment for three weeks, and then when he comes out, they assume, okay, he's done, it's fixed, he's cured, it's it's enough. The truth is. With these drugs, certainly, with most drugs, but certainly not, certainly these drugs and bubble, uh, you, you need far, far longer. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Than that, you need to take very a whole lot of care um, with the person uh, 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 upon leaving treatment as well. They just really had no um, uh, idea. they just told this to me uh, a couple of times. In fact, we we just had no idea what we were doing. We made all kinds of mistakes, and the biggest one was. They they acknowledge leaving him to his own devices uh, after he gets out of out of treatment, kind of providing him even the tools, the car that he took to to drive. And so, you know, recovery from addiction involves relapse. The difference is, unlike smoking, say you relapse, you don't die immediately anyway. Um, With this, these drugs, very often people people die very quickly. And that's that's what you also see this all, all all across the all across the country. They, however. Uh, stand out, uh, that couple of the schoonovers, because they were among the very first to be public. The, the, one of the other reasons this thing has spread so badly all across the country is so many families have wanted to hide it. And they made up, you know, fabricated obituaries and, and told the neighbors, oh, no, he died of a heart attack and all this kind of thing. Well, the schoonovers were among a, a small handful of families who were, did not remain silent, did not lie about it. They, they in fact, um, have made almost a second life for themselves going around and talking at different places, schools and different places uh, about this and so that everyone sees this is, this is a well-to-do couple in a well-to-do uh, suburb of, of Columbus, and they wanted people to, do, to know that this is the face of addiction right now.
0: Sam Quinones, Dreamland, the true tale of America's opiate epidemic. Tell me about Enrique.
1: Enrique is a, uh, it's not his real name, but um, uh, he uh, is a uh, young man from a town in the state of Nayarit. Nayarit is a small state in Mexico along the Pacific coast. You find it if you look on the maps, uh, about 12 hours south of Arizona by car. Um, he comes from a town that was essential uh, to this story, I thought, a town called Jalisco and, and in the state of Nayarit, where they developed a, a system, uh, guys from this town, families back in the 80s, really, and then in, improving it through the 90s. A system of selling heroin retail, um, like pizza, very much like pizza delivery. So you, you have a, an operator standing by to get the addict's orders. The addict calls in, and then the, 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 the operator calls several of the drivers he has working with them usually three or four drivers in, in, in whatever city they happen to be working in, and he dispatches one of the drivers. The drivers usually have in their mouths little tiny balloons, tied-off balloons with little doses of black tar heroin. Black tar heroin was a form of heroin, just like white powder, just not as processed. It's the same. It's heroin. And these guys developed this system in, in the San Fernando Valley of Los Angeles back when it was payphones back then, you know, and pagers and so on. Cell phones came later, revolutionized the whole system. But they be, began to, to spread. They began to look for new markets, very much like a franchise might look for new markets. So they moved to across the western United States. They moved to um, uh, uh, Portland. They moved to Phoenix, Albuquerque. Enrique works in each of those uh, cities. He worked for Bit in Phoenix worked for uh, a bit in, in Portland, and then he starts his own cell with himself as the boss uh, in, in uh, Albuquerque. Really, then he goes to Santa Fe, New Mexico. And, and he, I interviewed him because I wanted to understand uh, this the, the system, the importance of this town, though. The importance of this town in this story is not that they are the only Mexican heroin trappers. They are not. They, there are many others. But they were the first ones. They crossed the Mississippi River, land in Columbus, Ohio, right about the time when Columbus, Ohio, was the center of prescription pill promotion by pharmaceutical companies um, back in the late 1990s. They land just as that is beginning to take foot, take, take shape, and they are the first ones to see and then recognize and then systematically exploit the coming market for heroin, that widespread, massive prescribing of narcotic pain pills, of opioid painkillers, uh, uh, pr- promises. They can see this about to happen. And they just, because they're there, they stay. They then begin to follow the pills. One guy, really, in particular, uh, an older fellow does this. Enrique is among that generation in the 90s who does this. He goes to Santa Fe, and Santa Fe is actually arrested, does 13 years in prison, which is where I interviewed and he's been released since and deported. But... His story is part of how heroin traffickers began to figure out that when doctors begin to massively prescribe, I would say over prescribe to excess uh, these pills to all manner of Americans, for all manner of pain, all manner of situations and backgrounds that what that means is eventually we will have a big heroin market because a lot of those people who are prescribed those pills are going to get addicted to them. The drugs in those pills are chemical cousins. They're all derived from the opium poppy. And eventually people are going to look for heroin, which is more potent and much cheaper. And so the story of Enrique is really the story of this town and how this town figured in this this epidemic, particularly I would say very early on in the first first five ten years of it.
0: Did you find about find out about the Jalisco system through Enrique, or did you find out? Did you know about that system, and try to find somebody that had worked within it?
1: Yes, no, it was that way. I, I found out about the system from um, the Columbus DEA chief, and uh, then um, and he was telling me this system. I was like, I, I was blown away. I had lived in Mexico ten years. I, I had never heard of Jalisco Nayarit. It's a small town. It's only twenty thousand people in a county with a lot of little villages surrounding it. Of maybe total population of forty five thousand people, and he told me about this system. And he said, uh, and so, I, and then he gave me. Uh, I wanted to find out more, and so he gave me a list of all the people they had arrested practicing this system. Uh, and they, a lot of them were in federal prison. And so I wrote to him, and and of the twenty, fifteen or twenty guys I wrote in that first batch uh one guy, one guy uh, responded, but he was enough he He laid it out all for me. It was fantastic interview why did he, he laid it all everything?
0: why do you suppose he, he, he could, wanted to talk?
1: uh because he actually was not from the town. He was from another part of Mexico but had been recruited, and he believed that these guys had treated him poorly. They made a lot of promises of help that they would give him, and should he be arrested, that never happened. Um, he was pretty upset. He was doing 15 years in prison. He was an operator hmm. in one of, the, one of the crews in Columbus. And he was the one who told me that what, I thought initially that this was a story about this little town exporting dope to Columbus. And he began to say, oh, no, 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 no. He was the first one who told me uh, about Jalisco. He was the first one who told me about uh, uh, many things. But one of the things he said was, these guys are in many, many states. They're not just in Ohio. They are in you know Utah and Indiana and Minneapolis and Minnesota and North and South Carolina, and he listed many of them. He also told me something very interesting. I asked him well why aren 't you in New York?" I mean, I thought New York was our big heroin market d c philly uh, Baltimore yeah, these, good these question. places and, and and he said because they have guns there, and we are a bunch, most of the guys who do this job are not cartel killers they 're farm boys they 're they're, you know, go to Nebraska, some small town in Nebraska, look at the young men there. That's the kind of people that were, that were recruited. They were young guys, fairly conservative, just saw in heroin a way of buying property that they could never afford on the jobs that were available to them back there, All right. um, back, in, back in Mexico. So they never went to these places where the heroin market was very developed and entrenched and had decades old. They went to the places where there was no heroin market, but what the heroin market was going to come. They could see through the pills. And these were towns like Columbus, Cincinnati, Louisville, uh, Nashville, um, a variety of towns uh, uh, towns like that, Charlotte, and parts of South Carolina as well.
0: Sam Quinones, Dreamland, the tale, a true tale of America's opiate epidemic. How about Dr. Proctor? Can you just talk about him for a couple of minutes before the break?
1: Sure, of course. Uh, Doctor Proctor was the guy who invented the po- the pill mill in in, in, uh, in uh, Portsmouth, Ohio. Okay, he was. He began to figure out, you know, gee, there's um, there's this uh, big demand for this stuff, and he could fill his waiting room and charge cash. All these pill mills, you go in there for your prescription, you're not getting any. Ins- they don't accept insurance. You've got to go and pay 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 cash. It was a, a fairly um, uh, a, a flamboyant guy around this small, fairly uh, you know working class town uh, had a big mansion, what passed for a mansion in that town, and Porsches and right. flamboyant clothes because he had all this money from from a uh, pill mill. So he eventually got arrested, did 12 years in prison, and he's Canadian, so they so they deported him. But you can say that he was the what 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 one cop called said was he's the Ray Kroc of the pill mill, which it means to say. He trained a lot of people in his clinic who then went out and started their own pill mills, not unlike the expansion of McDonald's.
0: Interesting. And uh, just a quick, Arthur Arthur Sackler. Can you talk about him a little
1: bit? Um, Sure. Uh, Arthur Sackler is a very fascinating man, I always thought. He is part of a a family of brothers, all of whom now are dead. But he um, uh, uh, revolutionized pharmaceutical marketing Um, He came up with ideas of and this was in the 60s. He was the one who turned Valium into a billion dollar drug. That was it was not his company, but he was hired to to promote it. He was kind of one of
0: the madmen of drugs. Well, it is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high-five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com.
1: No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. Or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I wouldn't say that. I mean, he was a, he was a thoughtful guy. He was a uh, an erudite man. He was one of the great Asian art collectors the world's ever seen. There are m- several um, museums with his name on it, including one on the mall in Washington, D.C. Right. D. You can see that? I'm, say- um, I'm
0: thinking was- mad men yeah. like the advertisers on Madison I mean, Avenue. I'm
1: sorry. Yes, correct. Yeah, I'm sorry. Right. Exactly. Let- he was. That's kind of what he was.
0: Let's get into the role of Big Pharma. You can spell it all out, how it interacts. And even Congress and doctors. And maybe address the degree of culpability there, like what was the motive? Was Whose intentions were good and whose weren't? And who was in it just for the money all along and knew that it would addict people and they didn't care?
1: Well, it's a complicated uh, story. Um, in part, this has to do with pain specialists who uh, got into pain management and began to believe that we should be making far greater use of narcotic painkillers, opioid Ah, uh, painkillers, um, and in part they meet a they meet an ally, they make an alliance. Uh, they view the pharmaceutical companies as allies. The, the pharmaceutical companies are making the new pain tools. They believe we are doing an awful job of of treating pain in America, and to some degree they were correct. But uh, so they find an ally in the, the pharmaceutical companies who see an ally in them. They are it's probably independent specialists saying that we need to use more narcotics and so these are the companies that make narcotics well obviously they they find a, a nice little um a a coalition in a sense and one kind of each kind of feeds the other in a sense um as time went on uh, pharmaceutical companies particularly up Purdue began to market uh Nar- they're narcotic painkillers in Purdue's case, the, the 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 company Purdue Pharma is the one that makes Oxy- came out with OxyContin in 1996. It was a small company, private company out of Stamford, Connecticut. Uh, still there, not much larger, of course, because of all the sales of OxyContin. But um, their idea was, we need to use these 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 uh, pain specialists, and we need to sell this. And they're telling us now that these pills are virtually non-addictive. that science now knows that these pills are virtually non-addictive. Of course, science did not know this. There was no proof of that. But, you know, there were the pain specialists were in a hurry to get people to change. They thought we were we were we were relieving people in a horrible pain and we didn't need to. These pills could could cure that, could take care of that rather. And um, and these guys and, and so the the pharmaceutical companies used those folks I think to some great degree. And began to make this argument that we needed that they needed to um, that we needed to use these pills far more uh, effectively. At the same time, it's very important to understand pharmaceutical sales was going through a revolution as well. Used to be, pharmaceutical sales were, were done by older guys, almost all guys. Most of them were ex pharmacists. They knew a lot. Those sales folks from the 1970s and 80s knew a lot. They studied their product. They knew their product. They became almost. Uh, resources for docs to understand the, the use of pills and and what kinds of the medicine would do what and this kind of thing. They were very they were part of the community as well, but in 1990s, pharmaceutical sales changed as well, and so uh, of all those older guys were shown the door, and in their place were uh, the pharmaceutical companies hired more and more and more young, very good looking, very sexy. Uh, people, uh, a lot of women now, and they did not know anything really. They did not know much about what they were selling, but they did know how to sell. And they began to sell this stuff as uh, uh, the, in, with methods that were developed by the guy we were just talking about, Arthur Sackler, which was constant contact with the doctors, bringing stuff for the doctors. Uh, these these techniques evolved into the point where they were always bringing lunch because if you if you if you butter up the staff. If the staff's on your side, well, the doctor is putting in your hands Buy anything you, 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 you tell them to. Um, they began to give away stuff, and, 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 and all the companies were doing this. But Purdue was different because it was the only company, or one of the few anyway, that was, that was using these new strategies, these new techniques of promoting to do- pills to doctors to sell a narcotic and to sell a narcotic as if it were, were uh, non-addictive. All these other companies were selling, you know, Lipitor and anti-cholesterol drugs and all that kind of stuff, hypertension drug, all these things. This was the only company, one of the few anyway, that was selling it in, in, in and in t- using these techniques to sell a, 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 a narcotic. How much they knew, um, I think we're, there's a whole lot of lawsuits that are going on now that, that will, I think, eventually uh, come up with a very, very uh, complete answer to that, to, to that question. It's a private company. So there's not a lot of information uh, about it, or at least at the very least, there's, there's a lot that, that I suspect may come out because of all these, all, all these lawsuits. But certainly they were part of this whole push to get um, Americans to use more narcotics. On the other hand, I want to say one other thing about that, and that is that so were we. So were all of us, all Americans as a culture. We became uh, 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 we, wanted, we wanted quick fixes. We wanted easy answers, a pill for, for everything. And when a doctor said, you know, part of your pain is that maybe you don't uh, eat very well or uh, you, uh, you eat poorly, you don't get any exercise, you drink, you smoke, you all, these, all these things that go into kind of creating problems for you that, that result in pain, we as Americans don't want to hear that. We just want it to be fixed. And doctors saw that and felt that very, very acutely in their clinics, in their, in their, in their hospitals. And this was another reason, really, why doctors eventually were, were convinced, because patients were demanding it. And doctors went, for, as one doc told me, we were trained in medical school that doctors should be the educators, where they should educate people about how to take care of their bodies, about their health. And instead, what we became is just caterers. We just catered to the whim. Uh, of the patients who came through the door.
0: So the uh, Purdue pharma said initially that it was not addictive, but they had to know it was. I mean, there's no way you could not know.
1: Um, they were making the claim that was actually made by the pain specialist before them and relying on, uh, I mean, I, I what they, what they knew. I would imagine that they would have to know. And a lot of people in that company m- may well have, had some inkling at the very at the very least, but remember, a lot of those folks who were selling it didn't know anything about it. They were not the ex pharmacists of the seventies of the and eighties who made up the sales force. They were coming from rental car companies, computer. Yeah, but people company. would they show
0: were, up in like six months, all addicted right away. How, right. how could yes, you not exactly know that?
1: Exactly, no, of course, of course, um, and and this was what began to happen in. Uh, um, in very large numbers, very very quickly, and you could see graphs. Uh, what's more, that show, particularly, the state of Ohio was one place or the other, uh, where you see more opioids prescribed. The, the, in lock, almost in lockstep, you see deaths rising as well from overdoses. It just boom, 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 boom. Um, you know, it's it's uh, it's it's. Uh, I think in order to understand it, people need to. Um, Talk to the. Uh, my problem was, um, I tried very hard to talk to some of these folks. These folks are really not. A lot of them are not talking, or at least they weren't talking to me at, at this time. And of course, Purdue didn't want to talk to me at all. So it's you're kind of left to understand. Well, what 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 exactly was the problem? I will tell you this. I spoke with an addiction specialist in West Virginia one time, and he said, you know, the company hired me one time because a lot of they were concerned that there was a lot of addiction associated with this drug. They were told it would not happen, and yet it was happening. And so they hired me, and I brought an addict in, and she gave him a whole thing about how easy it was to find the dope and how easy it was to get addicted and so on. And they all seemed very, very concerned. It did not, however, he, he, he noted uh, ruefully later, um, change much about how they sold the drug. So they were concerned, but not to the point perhaps of, of – of radically revamping how they how they would market the the, 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 the thing, and of course, then the uh, others got into it, and and you began to see opioid prescribing just ex- escalate like an airplane taken off on the tarmac for years. It didn't drop until about four or five years ago. It began to fall, but but I mean, it's 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 this is part of the, this was a big part of of the story. And there, as I said, there's lots of lawsuits now brought by counties, by states, by, by attorneys general and so on that, um, I think, and eventually will divulge, will pry loose, uh, the entire story. And, um, that's my, my hope. Anyway, I I was one reporter on a, on a minuscule budget with, with, um, with very little uh, leverage. And, um, and I keep thinking that there are, um, and I was able to tell a lot of the story, but I still believe that there's there's a lot more um, hidden in some files somewhere, and right. was something like that.
0: Now, if we find that big pharma is culpable, Congress made it possible, right? And uh, to what degree is Congress involved in this and compl- complicit in this?
1: Well, I'm not I'm I'm not sure. I think what what happened that. Um, uh, at the federal government level, is that um, the FDA allowed uh, uh, OxyContin to be promoted uh, in this way, uh, almost like in, in the words of a report, GAO report I read, um, almost uh, the way uh, an over-the-counter drug might be, might be promoted. Um, and, and so th- that would be the first time that it ever happened, and a narcotic, an opiate derived from the opium poppy. Uh, would be promoted as an over-the-counter drug. It never happened before in modern America, anyway, going back a lot of years. So um, Congress, um, I- I'm not sure uh, if they have a direct role in this. I think the FDA more likely, more likely does. I would say nowadays um, what has happened is that um, this, this epidemic lay quiet and uh, festering for many years. Uh, largely because people didn't want to talk about it. They didn't want to recognize, they didn't want people to know that their loved ones were, were addicted to these, to these drugs or dying from these drugs. And so a lot of people, again, fabricated obituaries and didn't, didn't want anyone to, uh, to know. But now what's happening is that this uh, is uh, the, uh, the awareness of the issue in the last three years. Has really exploded. It's just, it's no longer hidden. People are no longer cringing alone in the darkness, thinking that nobody should know because everybody knows and there's, it affects so many people. It's just remarkable how many people it, it affects. And, and so now Congress is hearing about it as our state legislators as well and as our county commissioners and various, of various tribes, mayors and so on, police just So you're beginning to hear about this. And now that, that because you have this awareness, you have this awakening. Um, now you're seeing uh, it become the major issue uh, of the day that it deserved to be, uh, I'd say, at least 10 years ago, uh, but, but was not. How come? And, and so you're seeing budget and policy made regarding that.
0: Why is it that this is such a United States thing? Because it's not the case. It's not like this yeah. in other countries.
1: Uh, that's true. And in other countries, um, they do not prescribe these pills for pain the way we do. Um, it's far more judicious, far more uh, circumspect uh, approach to these these drugs uh, when it comes to when it comes to pain. Uh, it's it's not only the number of things that people that they that that these pills are used for in this country. But it's also the idea that if these pills, as these pharmaceutical companies and the pain specialists began to argue in the late in the 90s, if these pills are virtually non-addictive, then obviously it doesn't matter how many of these pills you prescribe, supposedly. And so what we began to see in America that you definitely do not see in, in the rest of the world is um, not just um, a prescribing, but lots of it. So you'd go in for a procedure like, a, let's say, an appendix removal. And you come away, this is pain that's going to last you two, three, maybe four days. Four days is about the maximum pain you're going to have to endure. They would give you 30 days worth of pills. They don't want to see you again. they give you a refill if they had to, uh, another 30 days, and maybe another one after that if you press the issue. But, but they gave you way too much. And this is what has been a big part of why we have this huge problem, too, because this helped create enormous supply year after year after year there's 50 uh, my understanding is something on the order of 50 million procedures done every year in in america various kinds uh you know simple routine uh, operations you go home a couple of days at the most and people across the board were getting not were getting these pills prescribed for them but it wasn't just that they were these pills were prescribed and they were prescribed in enormous amounts. And then you possibly could get a refill as well. I still That's what really happened.
0: I'm still in the dark about why they didn't know immediately that they were in fact addictive because you give a person pills, they take 30 days, you give them 30 days more and then they're addicted. How how could they not know that in two months? How could they not know that 20 years ago?
1: I totally agree. I mean, I, I, I think you have to understand the time. The time was, was uh, we've got to cure the Americans pain. Americans can't handle pain. We've got to find some way to deal with it. it was this drum beat that was pretty loud. We've got to deal with pain and other things. And 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 the way we got over it was we we believed people, uh, uh, doctors, when they said, yeah, massive widespread prescribing of p- drugs that come from the opium poppy eventually, you know, distilled from the opium poppy or drugs that were distilled uh, again from the opium poppy. Well those are not somehow going to create a widespread addiction. It was like, I believe, frankly, we were living in a fantasy. We also believe, by the way, you know, that, that uh, uh, it, it, it was normal for baseball players to get 60 home runs every year. It was also, we also believe, by the way, that um, if you package up massive numbers of home Badly, horribly performing home loans, and you form it into a security and Standard and poor stamps at AAA. That that's a terrific place.
0: To yeah, what, your money. I think
1: it, it was not alone. We were not alone. Yeah. In this kind of fantasy world. There were other other examples of it. I think
0: what you're painting a picture of is the fact that we we believe what we want to believe.
1: Yeah, right. And and and, and we believe that because it's easier. It's easier to, to do to believe that than to say. We all have to watch what we eat. We all have to get exercise. We all have to stop smoking. We all have to ma- moderate what we, what, we, what we drink. Cut out all that sugary so, all those sugary sodas. You know, it's weird. In the middle of the book, I did not start out writing a book about that. I thought I was writing a book about drug trafficking. And in the middle of the book, I began to realize, no, this is a bigger story than even that. This is a story about, about a culture of desiring and uh, feeling entitled to to no pain, and that, and that our consumer choices were a big part of that. So in the middle of the book, I just stopped drinking sodas and sweet teas, just cut it right out. I really almost never drink those things anymore. Well, you know, do you, think that, work do
0: you think that someday we'll look at sugar like we looked at cigarettes and like we looked at opioids, like a tremendously <laughs> addictive and harmful substance?
1: Yeah, and I'm going to tell you there's no better way to lose weight than to, than to stop eating sugar. I, I I'm a pr- I've, I've, I've lost 18 pounds, just basically just not eating sugar and exercising. Um, you know, cutting out as much sugar as I can, you find sugar in all kinds of things, not just ice cream and, and, and candy and sodas. You find it in breads and all these things. Yeah. You, 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 look for ways to cut it out. What it means, what this whole thing is showing us is that, um, we thought we could, not, we, we could get away with it not being accountable to our, for our own choices and our own uh, decisions regarding wellness. And this is really showing a big lesson in this whole epidemic is that we as Americans uh, need to be accountable to ourselves. We want everybody else to be accountable, not us. You know, we want the cops to be accountable, the doctors, we want public officials to be accountable. But when it comes to us doing the hard work, it actually turns out not to be so hard, but we think it's hard of of getting in shape and walking more and being around people, getting outside, getting off the sofa um, then uh, we rebel against, we've rebelled against that. and I think this problem is a symptom of that attitude among of, uh, kind of uh, within American culture. Obviously within American culture there's a wide variety of people um, and and a lot of people did take care of themselves, but a lot of people really just didn't want to. And, and doctors felt that. And doc, doctors, one doc told me, I knew things were changing when I began to see patients showing up asking for antibiotics for symptoms of the common cold. They yeah. didn't want to sleep. They didn't want to take a lot of flu. They just wanted to have a quick uh, fix. And, and, and I think there's a lot of threads to this story, um, and the pharmaceutical companies are absolutely part of it, big, big part of it. So are uh, Mexican heroin traffickers. But the truth is a lot of it, too, uh, comes back to us yep. and come back to the choices uh, that we make in what we eat. And also, you know, what what we subsidize as a government, we, as a, po- as a po- matter of policy in this country, we subsidize high fructose corn syrup, for example. Yep. We subsidize very fatty um, uh, chicken nuggets, by making chicken, processed chicken, so so cheap. Um, this is this is all damaging to us, and yet we make it as cheap as possible.
0: How's fentanyl in, involved? That cannot be good for business.
1: Oh, on the contrary. Uh, fentanyl is actually, a, you know, it's, an, it's a synthetic opioid made entirely of chemicals, so there's no plant involved, no harvesting uh, in, involved. Um, but fentanyl has made something very easy to do in the heroin world that once... Uh, uh, for a long time has been the case uh, addicts when, when they see somebody die or somebody od a lot of addicts view that not as a warning that is an advertisement go find that dope that dope must be really good because that guy just died it's like you, you're taking it all the way up to the edge i'm not going to die he died i'm not going to die i gotta find that dope well that's very difficult for heroin traffickers to Achieve because most of the profit motive in, in heroin is you. You buy a kilo, you cut it, you make it weaker, oh. and you make a lot of money that way. So really, it goes so
0: death is good profit. for business.
1: What they do, what you do, is with Sentinel, you're selling something that will will OD people and kill people, and it's very cheap to do. And that isn't an, that's an advertisement. People run to your dope. They want your dope. They want, they're now, people are now asking for fentanyl. Addicts are now asking for fentanyl because they've seen that it's killed so many people. So it's not a warning. It is advertisement on the street, even though rationally you would think, why would they want to kill their clients? Well, today, in this day and age, there's clients enough for everybody. So many people out there addicted and more being created uh, all the time that they they probably don't have to worry about that, which, uh, you know, the way they did say, uh, 30, 30 years ago when the number of addicts were very very static in town after town wherever you go.
0: Wow. Sam, thank you so much for your time. Sam Quinones, Dreamland, the true tale of America's opiate epidemic. Wonderful segments. I really appreciate your time. Thanks.
1: My pleasure, but Thank you very much. Okay. With Lucky Land Sluts, you can get lucky just about anywhere.